Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. A class action lawsuit that names 343 St. Louis Metropolitan Police officers, a report into key prosecutors withholding DNA evidence, and massive turnover at the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. What do these three things have in common? Today, our legal roundtable will delve into all of them and much more. Joining us in studio today is Bill Freivogel. He's a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Bill, welcome to the program. Hi. We're also joined by Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, this month we're joined by Mary Ann Sade. She's an attorney at the St. Louis-based firm Sade Harper Westoff PC. She specializes in employment issues. Mary Ann, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Do you have a question or comment for our legal roundtable? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Let's kick things off by talking about that class action lawsuit over kettling. It was certainly eye-catching. We saw many, many headlines about this last week. And this was a large group of protesters who are suing St. Louis police officers saying that they were denied their rights to be free from search and seizure by being rounded up. Legally, does this make sense as a class action lawsuit? Uh, Marianne. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of class actions is that one, two, three, four individuals who are affected in the same way as the class that they seek to represent file the lawsuit um, on behalf of themselves and others. And so it's a classic example of a class action. So many of these people who were rounded up that night, and some of them say they were beaten, they have already filed separate lawsuits. How does that work in a situation like this where they're also now potentially part of a class? Well, um, typically in a class action, uh, people are going to have the opportunity to opt in or opt out, depending on the nature of the class action that was filed. And so those individuals with their own suits may continue down that path. There may be reason for them to join the class action and dismiss their own claims. I don't know enough about it to know, but it'll, it'll all get sorted out. So some of these lawsuits that they've already filed, those could remain pending. They could be seeking a separate settlement on their own. Right. Um, so one of the other things about this that was certainly eye-catching and part of the headlines that we saw for this case is the lawyer who filed the case named 343 St. Louis police officers. I feel like more commonly we see somebody naming the department. We'll see them maybe name the police chief. What's going on with naming 343 police officers? Mark? Uh, it could be a variety of things. It could be they're trying to scare the police officers. It could be maybe um, they're trying to make an argument that these officers need separate representation, so it would be expensive, and maybe trying to carve some officers out. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, this could potentially be much more expensive for these officers than if they were just named as, as part of a unit or not necessarily. Marianne, you're, you're shaking your head. No, I don't think so. I think the city is going to represent them. Um, I think another possible explanation is at this point, the plaintiff's lawyers don't know who the who actual it. people were who were present that night, who took the action. And one of the things that I noted in the uh, articles is that there's been an ongoing investigation of the thing, and they waited till the very last minute to file the lawsuit. Their statute of limitations was about to run. So I think they expected to get the information, but they didn't. 
you were, you think they were waiting to get even more information about who to name? Yes. Well, well the, the police have not turned over a list of who, who the officers yeah. are present. And the lawyers are saying they can't identify them because they were in, you know, riot gear and that kind of thing. So yeah. because this, the, the police department hadn't turned over the names, that's why there was such a broad. And, and in there, you know, there's the class action that you talked about. But then there's also an individual lawsuit by I think her name is Laura Jones, um, former substitute teacher. And her she doesn't sue the whole department. She sues five John Doe's who are the people who um, she says, you know, uh, committed battery against her and, and violated her civil rights. So um, she doesn't know who those people and are. And so that's kind of the route you have to go if you don't know the names of the officers right. who are battering you. And then maybe you find it out during the course of discovery or after this report is done. Okay. So to name these 343 officers, I did hear some people who aren't lawyers don't really know how the law works. They felt like this was just an attempted at intimidation. But it sounds like you're saying there might well be some, some good legal tactics there, Marianne. Well, you know, I mean, the city has had two years to release a report on this. The city had every opportunity to hand over the names of the people who are actually there and responsible for this conduct. I mean, one way to look at it is these lawyers didn't have much choice at this point. Let's talk about the very idea of being kettled. Is it possible to be kettled by the police and not have your rights violated? Or is this just by definition something that is contrary to the Constitution? Well, I mean, at the time that this occurred, in November after the September kettling, the kettling was September, I think, 17th, mm -hmm. and uh, in November, Judge, uh, U.S. District Judge Catherine Perry said this was unconstitutional and, and that you couldn't just, police couldn't just surround a group of peaceful demonstrators who were posing no imminent threat of, of damage to uh, our, our, our law breaking and cut off their exits from like the block in which they were they were kettled and uh, and not give them a chance to get out. I mean, that's what the police did. Perry said that's unconstitutional. So how does that work? The fact that she made this ruling after the night this had already happened. Well, so she ordered it couldn't be done. You couldn't do it. They couldn't, couldn't do it going forward. Couldn't go. Yeah, exactly. So does that ruling end up having any applicability to this civil suit now being pursued? I don't know exactly. I mean, it would seem like it, it would fig factor into the the, the presiding judge's um, interpretation of the law, of what, what law applied to the circumstances. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, it's a powerful opinion. Um, and she's a very well-respected jurist. Another lawsuit was filed over the night of the kettle. This one was filed by Luther Hall. He is a black officer who was undercover that night. Several officers faced criminal charges over the fact that he was apparently beaten pretty severely. And he's saying in his lawsuit that he was treated differently because he was black. Um, but lots of protesters were beaten that night, some of them also white. So what kind of case is he going to be able to make here? Um, Mark Smith, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think he's got a similar case to the rest. The, the difference is it, it seems like once they identified him, somebody recognized him as a police officer, and then he was treated very differently. The, the, the substitute teacher we talked about, I think she was held in jail till like noon the next day. And so, um, you know, in a cell, moved to a different cell. Um, but I think he's got the, you know, he suffered, he alleges pretty severe inju injuries, herniated disc, uh, lots of other stuff. Yeah. 
And, and, and federal federal authorities have charged the police officers uh, yeah. uh, who beat him. I think one is already um, she's already pled, pled guilty. Pled guilty, right? Uh, so th- this would seem like a particularly egregious portion of that that night's activities. And the fact that these officers have been charged criminally—that's got to help his case, Marianne. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, in his lawsuit, he's saying that the mayor knew that he was treated wrongly. And part of the evidence he's using for this is this sort of interesting conversation that they had in an elevator. Uh, Bill Freiburg, I see you (laughs) smiling here. Do you think they've made this case here that the mayor, what did she know and when did she know it? Well, that the mayor had said something like he had a pretty face. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. They messed up your pretty face, I think, is the quote. Right. Um, I think, but the mayor says that... Well, she had seen a picture, I think, of him, but that she doesn't, she didn't say that. Yeah, so, she doesn't remember at least you know, saying it'll that. It'll be a sort of contested fact, I suppose. But I'm, you know, I I don't know exactly what the legal significance is. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly made for a bad headline for the mayor, but You're is right. it going to help this case in court? Who knows? <laughs> Um, We've got even more news related to Jason Stockley. It's funny, this case was adjudicated now more than two years ago, and yet the the news on this just keeps coming. So some big legal news broke Friday afternoon. It looks like kind of your classic Friday afternoon news dump. Um, After Jason Stockley, the St. Louis police officer, shot and killed Anthony Lamar Smith, and that's the case that set off all these protests, a gun was found on Smith. But we now know that only Stockley's DNA was on the gun. That suggested to some that Stockley had planted the gun. Al Watkins, the attorney who represented Smith's family, has said he was not told of the existence of DNA on the gun, despite asking the attorney general's office for any reports to that effect. Um, Attorney Hal Goldsmith, who was then in private practice, was asked to look into allegations that prosecutors knew that DNA was on this gun and um, apparently didn't turn it over. And on Friday, we finally got the unredacted Goldsmith report. Mark Smith, what were the revelations here? Well, there were two complaints um, that... Uh, he investigated. One was a video that was made by a citizen and whether or not uh, the attorney gen- Missouri attorney general had that and didn't turn it over. And, it, and they said, no, they didn't have that at the time. And th- these settlement negotiations, the mediated settlement negotiations were going on like 2013, I think. Right. So the other and the more troubling uh, one is these reports you talked about. So the, the, the police department analyzed two samples, one from the outside of the gum and one from a screw on the gun, and found only Stockley's DNA and not Smith's DNA. And, you know, the, 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 the um, Goldsmith says, well, they didn't turn it over. Mm-hmm. Um, he leaves some question, it seems to me, about whether or not they had it in their file, but they clearly he says, knew about it and because they had been told about it. And so, you know, the most charitable interpretation would be, oh, there was a, they told the police department, send over all the files and they didn't send this. Uh, and then they didn't replace it or send it over to uh, the lawyer. But I think we were talking about beforehand. I mean, that's a pretty, you should know what you, what documents you have and if there's a document missing, you have an ethical duty to say to your client, where's this document? Why don't we have that? Um, why haven't we given it to the other side? And, and you've got the, the plaintiff's lawyer saying over and over, where, don't we have any 
uh, results on yeah. the blood test because I know you did them. Um, well, where are these results? And they're just saying, we gave you everything we had. And which now we they know may that have wasn't had, the case. but they didn't. Okay. You have a duty to get them. Yeah. It yeah. seems to me that the uh, attorney, the, the, the Goldsmith report uh, pretty uh, clearly demonstrates that the Missouri Attorney General's office, under, uh, particularly under uh, Coster, um, gave knowing well, knowingly gave misleading statements about what they knew about this, mm-hmm. uh, about about the DNA. Um, so so there was a there was an assistant attorney general who was handling this case. Uh, her name was Dana Tucker, and uh, she so she's told she goes to a she meets with the police department about this. On June, uh, in early June of uh, 2013, and after that meeting, she says, hey, I found out stuff I didn't expect to find. Um, uh, um, I maybe have been conflicted myself out of this case. This case is extremely messy for Stockley. Exclamation point, exclamation Mm -hmm. point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Um, so then she, t- she tells the police board, um, about 10 days later, uh, you know, there's this, uh, you, you know, it looks as though, you know, there's, you know, there could be some involvement by Stockley. I mean, you know, the allegation obviously is that, uh, that, that there was no gun, uh, and Stockley just put down a throwdown gun mm-hmm. since only Stock- Stockley's DNA is on it and not Smith, the, the person who was killed. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, and then they don't, but they still don't turn over this evidence to the defense. And so there's a, uh, there's a settlement for $900,000, a pretty high settlement. Uh, and, and probably one of the reasons that the police board approved the high settlement was they that knew they, about they knew about yeah. it. They had been told by this, uh, by this uh, lawyer. But, the, you know, the lawyer uh, still maintains, well, you know, uh, acted ethically, um, <laughs> Marion today, real quickly here, we just have a, a half a minute here, but how big a deal is this? I think it's a big deal. I'm the kind of lawyer who brings claims and I need discovery. I need to know that the opposing attorney is going to turn over to me what I'm entitled to. So this story is a plaintiff's lawyer's nightmare, worst nightmare. <laughs> we need to tw- take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with our legal roundtable, Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Mary Ann Sadeh. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. And now back to our legal roundtable. We're here with Bill Freivogel. He's a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. We're also joined by Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Mary Ann Sadeh, an attorney at Sadeh Harper Westoff PC. We were having such a great discussion um, before the break about the Goldsmith Report, which is looking into reports about DNA being found on the gun that was on a St. Louis man who was shot to death by um, St. Louis police officer Jason Stockley. And we wanted to sort of go back to that before we move on to our next story. Um, Mark, yeah. tell us what's what's critical well, here. Well, what I was going to say is when you read uh, Hal's report, at the end he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but that the Missouri, he says it's clear that the Missouri Attorney General's office failed to produce the known DNA test results to the plaintiff's attorney. And 
and and it but then he says it remains unknown whether the um, the reports were simply simply inadvertently left out of the files provided by the police department to the AG or whether they were intentionally withheld. Now, intentionally withheld would be, I mean, that's super That'd be serious. Huge. Yeah. Um, but even inadvertently, we were saying it's not as benign as it sounds because it's clear from this, from the things they said, that they knew these things were out there. Plaintiff's attorney from this report sounds like he kept saying, where's the report? Where's the report? Mm-hmm. And, and as Marianne was saying beforehand, I mean, this is, you know, our legal system works on under this process of discovery where you have a right to get documents unless a judge tells you you don't have a right. And, and the scope of discovery is really broad, reasonably calculated to lead to the uh, discovery of admissible evidence, basically. Very broad. And so... And the judge had ruled saying, you got to give them all these documents. So um, I think... This is a problem. This is a problem. Well, it's clear that top officials of the Missouri Attorney General's office uh, for years were uh, uh, misleading the public, the the Riverfront Times, the Post-Dispatch. Um, they they knew about the, 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 the test results. They just kept trying to, they were playing the legal game saying, oh, uh, you know, we don't have the results in our files. They knew, the re, they knew what the results were. This is what lawyers and judges call sharp practice. Mm-hmm. And by that, they mean, well, maybe he didn't ask exactly <laughs> the right question. Like he asked for what was in the files. But the bottom line is it should have been in the files. They knew it was that it existed. And the other thing that I think is crucial here is that this was a very powerful piece of evidence. And it was held from uh, from the plaintiff's lawyer. And, you know, it was the defendant's position, both in the criminal case and in the civil case, that, you know, the gentleman who was murdered was reaching for his gun. Well, if there's no DNA from that guy on the, on the, on the gun in question, boy, that really raises big questions about that theory of the case. Mm-hmm. And this is stuff that all came out in the criminal trial of yeah. Jason Stockley. But for the people pursuing the civil suit not to have this, um, the attorney for the family of the deceased man called it a wholesale compromise of the federal civil rights system. Would you go that far? Or do you think this is more super sloppy and very troubling? I'd hate to agree with Al Watkins, but uh, but it, it is a terrible, I mean, it's, this is mostly, this is mostly state and local officials who, who are, are doing this. I mean, look, I think what's really disturbing is look at the performance of the police department over this last decade, what we've been talking about. You know, the, all, everything we've been talking about here, the, the, the kettling, you know, this unconstitutional uh, behavior, beating up one of your own undercover officers in the, in the midst of the kettling, um, uh, the, the, the covering up the evidence on that would have led to an earlier prosecution of Jason Stockley. Um, and, uh, you know, it was only last month that we all were talking on this, pr- on this program about a couple of circuit attorneys, young circuit attorneys who were covering up for uh, a boyfriend who was in the police department who had beaten up a, uh, beaten up a suspect. Um, I mean, this is, this is outrageous behavior, and, it's, and, and there's, a, there's a pattern of it. And, and uh, you know, I have to I, – I think that uh, Jennifer Joyce, uh, you know, deserves – The former cre- St. Louis former circuit attorney. circuit attorney who prosecuted Stockley in 2016. She deserves credit for having gone ahead with that prosecution even though 
it did not result in a conviction. And I would give Kim Gardner uh, uh, a plus also for trying to take this on in her time as circuit attorney to, um, you know, keep uh, police officers who are lying on the stand off the stand. Let's go to the phone lines here. This is not on the subject we've been talking about, but I think it'll be a good transition to all the other cases we need to talk about today. Uh, Chris from Clayton, you're on St. Louis on the air. Yes, I wanted to know the panel's opinion of our two new Supreme Court justices, whether they're, they turned out to be the Antichrist as we were promised. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you, for that. thank you for that question. I'll turn that over to our panel. Does anyone have a, a strong opinion on either Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh? I don't think they are the Antichrist. Uh, you know, the, you <laughs> well, know, that's good to know, Bill. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we really can't. We really can't. We won't know what these two uh, justices are like for probably you know ten years, twenty years. Uh, the long uh, sweep of history. The long sweep of history, right? But uh, the original, you know, first impressions are that uh, Kavanaugh is sort of closer to. Uh, Roberts uh, on the more maybe moderate conservative uh, middle of the court. That I mean, we have five Republican appointed conservatives, and we got four uh, Democratic appointed liberals. And and so so you have the most moderate uh, is Roberts, the Chief Justice, yeah. and you have Kavanaugh agreeing with him on some important issues, um, some sort of peripheral issues involving uh, abortion, for example. Um, Gorsuch is clearly uh, very conservative and is out there pretty close to, to Clarence Thomas on the far on the far right of the court. Um, and um, you know that one one news one, one news story that recently came out about Kavanaugh. It, you know there was a New York Times opinion um, uh, Sunday mag Sunday uh, opinion section uh, piece on a book that had come out saying how poor. Uh, the FBI investigation of the sex harassment ca- uh, allegations against Kavanaugh had been back from his time in high school. Back from his time in in high school and and in college at Yale. Um, I think that book and that story made some really good points about it was a terrible investigation. You know that was that sort of last minute, last week investigation of uh, at the end of the confirmation hearings. But it was a it was also a really terrible job by the New York Times, which. Uh, um, you know, left out of its original version of the story the fact that a new uh, instance of supposed uh, sexual harassment that the the alleged victim did, uh, wouldn't talk and and had told friends that did, had no recollection of it. So that was really poor poor journalism. Uh, but you know, we'll see. Kavanaugh seems to be more towards the middle. Gorsuch on the right. Marion, today, any any thoughts on either of these guys? Oh, you know, here's what I would say. We was robbed of the opportunity for President Obama to appoint the position that eventually went to Gorsuch. It was outrageous. Um, Having said that, it's going to be a long time before we see how this all shakes out. There was a recent case um, that actually affected uh, Missouri, the the Bucklew. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's a man on death row in Missouri, and um, and Gorsuch actually ended up writing the opinion um, that said um, his appeal, which he was making an Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment because he has a, a medical condition, and he said, if you give me the injection, um, there's a chance that uh, my these blood vessels will rupture, I'll basically drown, mm-hmm. and, um, and here's an, another method, and you should... Uh, 
uh, or, or he said you should do something else. And Gorsuch so you can said, you can kill me, but don't kill me this way right. was sort of his and argument. And Gorsuch basically said, "Hey, the Eighth Amendment doesn't guarantee you a painless death." Uh, and you've got Thomas even going further, saying, um, "We don't have to as long as we're not intentionally inflicting pain, we're good." Um, so that's a very extreme position. But but um, the the liberals, the four liberals who dissented, said. He shouldn't have to point to a particular. Just if this is going to be really painful, and uh, we that should be enough. And so he's, he's so clear. they dissented in that. Saying. Yeah. So he, he I'm not sure if Kennedy would have still been there if, if this if this would have um, come out the way it was. Quite likely, it would have come out differently. D- differently the yeah. other way, five four, because Kennedy usually supported sort of middle of the road kinds of death penalty claims like this. Kennedy was the person who wrote the no juvenile execution, for example. So if Kennedy had still been here, you think Russell Bucklew could be facing a different manner of death, but still be executed? At least couldn't be executed the way Missouri wants to do it. it. Figuring out what what happens to him would maybe have been down the road. Now, on the subject of Russell Bucklew, um, there are a number of people arguing that his life should be spared. We've got all four Catholic bishops. We've got the ACLU. Do you think there's any chance that our governor might Parson is going to listen to any of these constituencies of Marianne today? I really don't know. Honestly, I don't know the governor's position on these issues. Yeah, I, I don't either. I mean, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to predict. We don't really know very much about. I mean, this. I think this is the first case like this that's before him, and so we don't really have a track record to judge from. Okay. So we've just got about a minute here before we're going to have to take another break. But uh, Representative Sherry Tolson Reich, um, a representative from Hallsville, a Republican, is fighting in court for the right to block her constituents on Twitter. She's being sued by somebody that she blocked. And when you block someone on Twitter, they not only can't respond to you, they also can't see what you're tweeting. Um, Bill Freivogel, do citizens have the right to see elected officials' tweets? Well, yes. I mean, elected officials are conducting a lot of their business uh, by Twitter. I mean, you've got the president conducting diplomacy and everything (laughs) else by Twitter. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a a case involving, and I think this this court decision is just, um, or this court case uh, reminds one of, uh, there was an appeals court uh, decision recently, earlier this year, where it said, that President Trump could not block people who disagreed with him from his Twitter account because it's a, it's a you know a government pl- uh, platform and you can't discriminate based on the viewpoint of a person who might not like your tweet. So this becomes a First Amendment yes. issue. Yes, it yeah. violates the First Amendment to, to to cut off people who disagree with you from your Twitter account if it you're a government be, official. It would be different if it was my right. Twitter account. Yeah. I'm a private, private citizen. citizen. I have opinions. I can block people if I like. But this is governmental action. Right. Okay. And she's, and um, she's commenting on governmental issues, and she's allowing people to, to uh, comment. Okay. We need to take a quick break here. Uh, when we return, we'll discuss circ- uh, turnover at the circuit attorney's office. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, and I'm here with our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Marianne Sade of, S- of Sade Harper Westoff PC. Um, in the news this month, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. Actually, she seems like she's in the news every month, but <laughs> she's drawn her first official challenger for the next election in 2020. That's former prosecutor Mary Pat Carl. She says she's going to run again. Gardner beat her last time around in a four-way race. 
But this month, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that Gardner has suffered 100% turnover since taking office in 2017. Quote, the departures mean a combined 470 years of experience prosecuting crimes in St. Louis has left, according to a Post-Dispatch analysis of staff rosters. That's an eye-catching number, but should we be concerned? Marianne today? I think you always have to be concerned when you lose that kind of experienced workforce, whatever the reason is. Um, you know, I, I think the Post-Dispatch, the implication is that it's Kim Gardner's uh, drove them out of there. I'm not, I don't know whether that's true or not. I just honestly don't. There, there but it's a problem. There are to leave. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean one is... Um, you don't get paid a lot. Yeah, that job and is so, very low pay. Yeah, you go over to private practice. You can probably double your salary. You have all this trial experience. So we don't know if that's part of it. Also, Jennifer Joyce had been in there for 16 years. So you've got people who were used to Jennifer Joyce. I mean, I think one of the reasons people leave their jobs, probably what I hear is the most important is who your boss is. And mm -hmm. do you do you believe in it? And so she's definitely shifting things over. But, but it... It seems like it's continuing, and even with the people that she's kind of hired. Even her hires have right, now left. Right. And so even if there's, uh, like Marianne said, even if it's not like some bad things going on, just you hate to lose all that experience, um, and you worry that are they doing things the right way? Is that going to affect the operation of the office? So there's an additional quote from that story in the Post-Dispatch. They say, through August of this year, the circuit attorney's office has dropped 31 percent of all resolved cases. These are cases where they have brought charges, and they ended up dropping them. That's more than double the dismissal rate of any year this decade, except for last year when it was 23 percent. Is that a concerning statistic? Bill Freivogel, what are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, if, if that is, I mean, it's. A, you know, I, I guess I want to know more about about those cases. I mean, so so also the number of people incarcerated has dropped mm -hmm. like twenty three percent. And this is a reformer kind of prosecutor. This is a reformer. I mean, th maybe that's good. You know, maybe we should. Maybe the workhouse should be closed. Uh, maybe people shouldn't be spending mo months in if they aren't dangerous. Uh, to society in in the workhouse when they're still not even convicted of a crime. Uh, so yeah, she has she and Wesley Bell um, um, have a very different approach to uh, prosecution. That it's that their their goal isn't to put as many people in prison as possible and keep get them off the streets, uh, but that there are other ways to keep the community safer. And you know, I I, I think that her turnover. Uh, I mean, Joel. Courier, the Post Dispatch reporter who wrote this story, has been at this from the beginning, and I, you know, I think he, I think his stories do raise, you know, concerns that you know even supporters of Gardner are are, are concerned about. But yeah. I mean, it's also been, I just think part of this is her different philosophy and the fact that, uh, and this goes back to the discussion we were having before the break, the fact that the police department uh, has been sort of, there's been sort of a war between them. Absolutely. Uh, and, um, uh, the, you know, there's plenty of reason for Gardner to be trying to get the police department to clean up its act and uh, stop covering up police misconduct and lying on the stand. We got a tweet from a listener named Ryan. He says, can your guest put that 100% number in perspective? What does turnover with a new prosecuting attorney normally look like? How unusual is this? Well, as Mark Smith was saying, it has been a while since we've had a new prosecuting attorney. Um, Marianne, it sounds like it's just it's hard to even say what 100% what turnover means in a case like this. Yeah, and it's been, what, two and a half years now? I, I, I'm not sure what mm -hmm. it means. Yeah. Um, I, 
I don't know what the typical turnover is. I know whenever there's a new prosecutor elected, there's a lot of turnover. And, the, and Mary Fox, the public defender yeah. in that same article, said, well, I've lost two dozen of my 28 over the last That's few another low-paid office. Yeah, it's a low-paid where, where you get great trial experience and you learn a lot and then you're sought after. So, Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about Title IX. Now, this is the federal law giving women the right to equal access to education. It's been used to require that universities provide a place where sexual assault is taken seriously. Many universities have been sued after young women say they were raped and allege that the schools failed to act. Now, at Washington University, we've got a different kind of case right now. In February, a young man known only as John Doe sued Washington University. He was accused of sexual assault and expelled just before graduation. But there's some really interesting issues involved this case, which is still ongoing. Um, Bill, what are, what are some parts of this that have you sort of uh, intrigued? Well, I'm, the, the, the thing that I'm interested in, uh, well, I'm interested in a couple of parts of this. One part is just that the complaint uh, at Washington University's request uh, uh, is not a public document. And um, that's Unusual. I mean, I'm I'm generally as a you know a, a, as a reporter and a lawyer interested in in open records. Uh, I'm I, I'm not a big fan of closed uh, criminal closed civil complaints. And uh, part of what makes this very odd here is the young man himself wants this suit to become public. He said that he would like to share a bit about this experience. It's not clear if he wants to do that anonymously, but. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think he thinks he was wronged that that Washi threw him out uh, without having, you know, given him a, a, enough of uh, a hearing or an investigation into the facts. Uh, I, I, I should. I have to tell you that just to declare that I have a little bit of a conflict of interest here. I'm head of the Student Life uh, Publication Board, and and part of the and that's facts, the student newspaper at Washu. The student newspaper, <laughs> and some of the facts here involve. Uh, uh, an op-ed that was in Student Life, so I just want want to make that clear. The other thing that, that is sort of interesting about this is is how how it factored, how how Washu factored into the debate last year about trying to weaken well, uh, weaken the protection for um, uh, 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 weaken Title IX um, to give uh, <coughs> people who uh, were accused of sex harassment. More opportunities uh, to defend themselves, and you know this did not get through uh, the Missouri legislature. Uh, thank goodness. But uh, you know, one of the board members of the of Washington University was a big supporter of it and used some uh, dark money to try to help help get it get it passed. Uh, not, to try to push it through. Yeah. Yeah, and WashU itself criticized that effort. But, yeah, they publicly uh, spoke against yes, this. Right, uh, Marion. Today, what are your thoughts on this litigation? Well, you know, Title IX is, uh, I mean, these, these cases involving sexual misconduct on college campuses are very difficult. I think they're very difficult uh, for the institution. Washington University is a private institution. Nobody's entitled to due process um, in connection with a decision about whether or not to um, suspend or, or uh, throw a kid out of school. On the other hand, 
they want to do the right thing by both parties involved. And the whole idea of Title IX is to set up some procedures that do, in fact, give both parties the opportunity to be heard on these questions. Um, these, you know, these things always involve alcohol, wherever you've got sex involved, they're really tough. So, so I think these are difficult issues. I thought it was extremely cynical of the Missouri legislature to uh, even consider this bill that was going to like way up the rights of the accused and take away a bunch of rights from uh, the supposed victim in these cases. It's a hard balance. I get that. I do. But um, both parties need to be heard. I thought one of the most interesting parts in, in the legal filings in this case that we are allowed to see is that this young man, John Doe, who was accused of sexual assault, he suggests that he had a contract with the school that by paying his $300,000 or whatever he paid, that he wasn't just paying for education, he was paying for a diploma, that he has a right to get that diploma at the end and not be expelled. Um, do you think there's any point to that claim legally? That seems kind of dangerous. Um to me. <laughs> Bill Freivogel, I see you're laughing. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you, you certainly can't claim that you have a, a, right to a, a right to a diploma, you know, no matter what, you, what your behavior was at, at the university. Uh, so I, you know, yes, sure, there's a contract. I guess there's an, an, a contract between the university and a student. Is there, Mark? Um, I'm going to stay out of this and let people who are smarter than me and know more about it at WashU comment. <laughs> there you go. I but, but I will say this, you know, I had an interaction with Bill um, like 20 years ago when I was president. With pres- Bill Fiverr, our fellow guest. He was, yes. he was on the editorial board of the Post, and I was president of the police board, or vice president of the police board, and the president was accused of sexual har- harassment of some police officers, and Bill was writing really nasty editorials about how the how the police board was covering it up and wouldn't say anything. And so I called him, and I don't think I knew you at the time, and I just said, well, you know, what do you want me to do? Um, because I got these officers and I need who are complaining and I need to protect them because I don't want them, to, I don't want other officers to feel like I can't come and bring these charges. And I felt like, maybe you didn't, but I felt like you softened a little bit after that because you felt sorry for me, Bill. Um, I had no idea you guys had this history. This yeah, is, yeah, this we, something new about our but, legal roundtable. But the idea that, you know, the institution, whether it's Title VII, Title IX, you're trying to present, pr- protect individuals so they can come forward and make these complaints and not feel like they're being victimized a second time uh, while maintaining giving everyone and protecting everyone's due process rights. Um, so earlier in the show, we talked about the Goldsmith report into Jason Stockley's DNA. Um, Hal Goldsmith, who wrote that report, is now the assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri. He led the prosecution into former county executive Steve Stenger. He recently spoke for the first time about the Stenger case, and he suggested that the U.S. Supreme Court made his job more difficult in 2016. This was news to me. Um, Mark Smith, do you uh, you want to give us sort of a summary of, of what the issue is here? Yeah, the, there was a Supreme Court case that said, for public corruption case, and I think it was Virginia governor, right? Yes, that was on that, that you needed certain acts. So just, um, they, they pointed to specific actions. So just if I'm the governor and I say to one of my employees, hey, will you meet with this donor and just talk to him? He wants to, that's not enough. But if I say to my employee, will you award him a contract? That goes over the line. Or let's not bring this lawsuit or let's bring this lawsuit because my donor wants it. So made it tougher for prosecutors like Hal. So do you think we're going to see trouble with, uh, you know, we'll think that somebody's bribing somebody, but legally it's just going to be too hard a standard. Mary Ann Sade? 
I don't know. You know, I mean, look, politics forever has involved, uh, you know, donations to get access. And access is really different than getting a decision in your favor or getting um, a contract awarded to you. So I actually think the Supreme Court was right on this one. I really do. And on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time. We had a great discussion today. I want to thank Marianne Seday of Seday Harper Westoff PC. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Mark Smith, Associate Vice thank Chancellor you. and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Thank you. And Bill Freivogel, a professor of the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.